keep your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 2. And today we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. If, if not enough stuff has gone wrong. <laughs> i got to be picking up these mics here, so... Praise the Lord. Hey, we've been in verse John uh, now for several weeks, and we have seen in this uh, great epistle, um, John writing to the churches in Asia to defend the gospel against an emergent heresy that was of the day, which was Gnosticism. And in his epistles, we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2, John gives various tests to the church, particularly to see if, in fact, they are in the faith. We see in chapter 1 that John asked believers to examine themselves by how they walk. And walk is a metaphor for how they live, how they abide, right? And he says, you know, are you walking as a believer? Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light? In chapter 2, he tests the moral character of the believer by examining their conduct in verses, you know, 3 and 4. And now in verses 7 and 11, he begins to do another examination for the believer. And that's an examination or a test of love. I mentioned this in the very beginning that John was, uh, you know, we think of John, you know, he's the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We think of John as being so full of love, right, that, that even in the Middle Ages, they kind of personified him almost as effeminate. You know, John was always kind of, wasn't overly manly. But John was a fisherman, sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, and as I mentioned to you last week, it was James and John that when Jesus was rebuked from a Samaritan village, right, that they were like, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And we even see in this epistle, John gives very direct feedback about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in today's text, we're going to take a look, and he's going to give us three principles in verses 7 through 11. Principle number one is, he's going to show us love as an old commandment. And we're going to take a look at that. Principle number two, he's going to show us love as a new commandment. In verse 8. And then this is really the significant point here, which is the third principle. He's going to show us love as the defining mark of the believer. And we're going to look at what, what love is he speaking about. The world, you know, has their own definition of love. And the world would say, oh, it doesn't matter. All you need is love, right? Remember the Beatles? Well, so many younger people won't remember the Beatles, but the old bags like me will remember the Beatles. And they had that great song, all we need is love, all we need is love. So as we continue, I want you to remember, as we always go through, that context is king. Right, So this is a continuation of the dialogue that John began, primarily beginning with verse 3 as he's showing them all these examinations. 
But let's look at the text, and then as is our custom, let's jump in. Verse 7 says, Beloved, I'm not writing to you a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Since the days of old, love for God and love for others has been a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, you know, we see an emphasis that the Lord places on love and particularly as it relates to the worship of God. If you have your Bible, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. You might know this as what the Jews refer to as the Shema. And it is the highest commandment. Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your might. This love that John talks about, this love that it's written here in Deuteronomy, is a love for God. A love for God. Notice, notice how it's written. You shall love the Lord your God. This is, by the way, I'm going to digress for a minute, right? In today's church, Worship is defined as music. It's defined as music. But music is not worship. Worship is the adoration of God. That word worship actually means to, to kiss, to embrace. So you want to worship God? You must worship God with love. And here in Deuteronomy, he says, you would love the Lord God, notice with this, with all of your heart, the center of emotion, with all of your soul, the center of your essence, and with all of your might. To love the Lord with all of your... All, to love the Lord God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, is to worship God. Please do me a favor. Please do not make worship synonymous with music. Worship is the love and the adoration of God. And it is a love that is transforming. It's a love that's permeating. It's a love that overcomes anger and jealousy. It's a love that directs everything to God. And it makes one thing, doesn't it? It makes you think 
we love God in that manner? Do we love the Lord our God in that manner? Listen, when Jesus was asked by one of the scribes, what's the greatest commandment? Notice how Jesus answers in Mark 12, verses 28 through 31. Notice how it's recorded. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is foremost of all? Now here are the words of Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost, hear, O Israel, that our Lord God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Boy, that's very different than what the world calls love today. The world's definition of love is contained in self. Be satisfied with yourself. If you feel it, then you must respect me. You must love me. The world's definition when it cries out love is love is this is what I want to do. Therefore, you should love me. But that's not what the scripture says. Jesus incorporates two aspects of this love. A total unwavering love for God and a total love for your neighbor. This is the original commandment, right? John states here in verse 2 that he is, uh, John states here in verse 7 of 1 John, notice what he says. He said, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but an old commandment. And he's using a play on words, and you're going to see this in, in verses 7 and 8. That word new means fresh, properly innovative, you know, something that's emerging right now. He says, I'm not giving you a new commandment. John states this because it's not new and innovating to love God. That was from the very beginning. From the very beginning, man was called to worship and to love God. And let me tell you something. Everyone worships. Everyone worships something or someone. And the word that John uses there, old, well, that just simply means it's, it's ancient. The point John is saying, look, to love God, this is from the very, very root and the very foundation and the very beginning. This is the love that John speaks of. While it has been old, it has been ancient, it has been discussed and spoken for ages. And these churches in Asia, the only biblical text that they would have had would have been the Old Testament. So he pulls him back. He says, hey, this is an old command. I'm not telling you anything here that's new. And I want to be very clear with this, that John is referring specifically, specifically to the love of God. Go back a few verses to verse 5 of chapter 2. Notice what he says, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. This love that he speaks to is not a love between a husband and a wife. It's not a love for a neighbor. It is a love for God. And John's point is that it is this love for God, this love for God that becomes the test for believers. Does the love for God 
Does the love of God and the love of other believers permeate our hearts and our lives? John's point, and we're going to see it throughout the remainder of the text, is if this love of God is in you, this is evidence of saving faith, true belief, and true worship of God. Look at verse 8. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John, again, using this play on words, now states that this commandment does have a new, fresh aspect to it. Why? Because Jesus personified love in a fresh and new way. This love of God was shed abroad in the hearts of believers. It is energized by the Holy Spirit. and Therefore, Christ has raised this love to a new and higher level. Notice what Jesus says in the gospel. Turn over in the gospels to John chapter 13. Verses 34 and 35. Listen to the words of Jesus. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice this. Jesus didn't say you would know you would be my disciples if you have the right doctrine and we stand on right doctrine. We understand the criticality of doctrine. But it is the love for God and the love for one another in the body of Christ that identifies believers. Go forward two chapters. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 17 of John 15, this command, I command you that you love one another. I don't think there's anything ambivalent about this, is there? Is there anything ambiguous about it? The Christians are to love. Christ's new approach to the love of God brought about the new birth that transcends the aspect of love. And what Christ is talking about is that agape love of God, that sacrificial love of God. That agape love technically means to prefer to love. Think about that for one moment. When we are saved, we are born again by God's Spirit. God's Spirit comes and inhabits and dwells us. As I said time and time again, the Spirit pulls us. He draws us to God. And in that process, the believer prefers. This is preferential in the heart of believer. We choose to love God. We have the opportunity to love God. We are compelled, not only compelled, but from the very depths of our being, we choose to love God. The great martyrs of the faith, as they stood upon their martyrdom, chose the love of God over the love of the world. It is the love of God that compelled them. It was the love of God that would send them to be burnt alive or thrown in oil or to be thrown before the lion's den. How deep, how rich is that love of God? And church, how we as believers have to come to that place in Christ. 
where his love compels us. It controls us. This agape love is unlike anything the world has known. So rich was that love that it cost Christ his life. And yet by the grace and the mercy of God as believers, we have been gifted by grace to be able to give back and love God. Let me ask you a question. When you come to church on Sunday, and nobody has to raise their hand or head nod, because it's directed as much as to me as it is to anybody else. But when you're getting ready to come to church on Sunday, and you're probably well familiar with this, everything is going wrong. Right? You can't seem to get out of your own way. Right? You're all dressed and you spill coffee on yourself and now you have to go, you know the drill. But here's the deal. When you come to church, do you come with the mindset, I get to worship my God. I get to lift up my voice and sing praises into the heavens. I get to pray with other believers in Christ. I come to give my heart and to open my heart to the God that saved me. And I come to love him and to exalt him and to praise him. See, if we all got that mindset, going to church wouldn't be arduous. It wouldn't be difficult. We come together. My goodness, today we're going to come before the Lord's table as a community of one, repeating a memorial for the Lord that believers have been doing for 2,000 years. It, it makes me want to wonder who else joined in that. James, John, Peter, Polycarp, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all the great men and the great women of God throughout the century who have joined in and have come into that fellowship. Listen, this isn't a task, neither is it a ritual, neither is it tradition. When we gather on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, this is an honor and a privilege to be in the house of God. Listen, the agape love of God is evidenced in the new birth. Believers love God, and that love is displayed in obedience and service to God. In all Christian service, write this down if you don't know it, but all Christian service involves sacrifice. There is no service without sacrifice. And John states that this love, which is true in him and in you, which are the believers. The believers heard of this love of God and the love of Christ when they came to saving faith. And it became the true light of Christ. And again, the question is, can this be said of you and I? Can this be said of you and I? Has the darkness passed away? Have you come into the true light of Christ? 
Look at verse 9. The one who says he is in the light yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. You know, as here we see John, he's defining love now as the true mark of the believer. I want you to see this. In verses 9 through 11, John is going to identify that this love for God, this love of God is the true mark of a believer. And specifically, he challenges the churches to put the doctrine to test by demonstrating that doctrine without obedience is not saving faith. And to illustrate this, John uses two opposing images, two sets of opposing images. He contrasts darkness with light, and he contrasts love and hate. All throughout this epistle, John has been articulating that our obedience is the hallmark of a believer. How can one say that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, when their life testifies to a lack of love, a lack of power over sin, a lack of desire for God, a lack of the worship of God, and John comes to the conclusion that this is impossible. I mentioned to you last week when we were in last week's text, I said part of this Gnosticism has infiltrated the modern evangelical church today. It has. And most of the people who are embracing it don't even know that its, its form, its origins were in Gnosticism. But there are many people who would say that I don't have to go to church to be a follower of Christ. And I don't have to do this. And I don't have to do that. And I have the liberty to do this. And I have the liberty to do that. But how can someone who has been impacted by the new birth who has been born again, as Peter said, of seed which is incorruptible, not have a desire for God, not have a desire for his people, not have a desire for his word, not have a desire to spend time in prayer, and yet say, I love the Lord. And First John, this becomes black and white. John is as binary as it gets. And here we see this right here in verse 9. The one who says he is in the light. There's the profession. That's the profession. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Now here he's dealing with Gnosticism, right? So Gnosticism taught that in order to know God, you know him in the spirit, okay? And you have to have this experience this super duper spiritual experience you got to have this super duper spiritual experience but they disregarded all the other things of the gospel so their thought was hey everything that's matter is corruptible it's inherently evil therefore if i am in a human body and i am inherently evil it gives me the ability to indulge in those things that are evil. I'm just doing what I was created for. But I had this experience. And I know 
God. I know that which is divine. In the early days of the church, there was a doctrine that came out of this where people in the church said, well, all you have to do is focus on your justification. Just focus on your justification. Focus on the fact that you were justified in Christ. It's the only thing that matters. Don't worry about holiness. Don't worry about sanctification. You don't have to worry about it. Just focus on your justification. And it was condemned as a heresy. That doctrine was called antinomianism. That doctrine is alive and well in the 21st century church. I'm forgiven, but I could live like the world. What does John say about it? He says, well, the one who says he's in the light yet hates his brother. He says he's in darkness. That word hate, it's an interesting word. Literally, it means to de- detest. But it, it kind of goes a little broader. It means to love someone or something else more. To love someone or something else more. By doing that, you detest that object. How are we called to love God? What did we just read in Deuteronomy? We are called to love God how? With all of our mind, our heart, and our soul, and our strength. There cannot be anything else that we love more than Christ or God. To do so is to detest. The love of God. Note the definition. These are, these are powerful words. How can we reconcile indifference toward Christ, toward his word? How can we get so engaged in the world and, and love the things of the world? John would even call those who were in the, in the church. Think about it. Repent thereof. Turn away. And the message to the church today is, let us go back. Let us go back to the very precepts. Let us go back to the very beginning. Let us love God with all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. John's words here is that a profession without the possession, a profession without the fruit, Well, it's empty talk. That's what John is saying right here. And if it's empty talk, then it's not walking in the light, but walking in darkness. Go back to 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 6. John's already dealt with this. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness... What do we do? We lie. Do not practice the truth. But he goes on in verse 7. But if we walk, and that word walk means to abide, to remain in. It means something that is perpetual. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, and is my favorite thing, from all sin. All sin. Does it mean that Christians walk in sinless perfection? That's not what it means. Because we know later in chapter 1, verse 9, what does he say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Let anyone know if we, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's a term used concerning the blood of Jesus Christ. It's called efficacious blood. It means that Christ's blood is ever cleansing, ever cleansing the believer. Christ's blood is ever cleansing. It's sufficient. It's all-powerful. It gives the ability to cleanse from all sin, which is why, as believers, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to live in a religious system that says, well, this sin is, is, is a really bad sin and this sin isn't that so bad. We don't have the venial and the mortal sins. If you, if you do that, well, that's a mortal sin and you got to say X amount of uh, decade of the rosary and all the other. We come and we stand on the ever-cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us. Look at verse 10. Continuing on this same thought process. Continuing with this examination. John writes, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. I love this. John masterfully illustrates this point by using... Contrast and compare. How many times do you hear me say that? Look in the Scripture for contrast and comparing one against another. In verse um, 9, he states that the one who hates is indicative that he's not in the light. In verse 10, he shows us what it means to remain in the light. The distinction or the qualifier is what? It is the agape love of God. Look what he says, the one who loves his brother abides. I want you to circle in your Bible that word abide. We looked at it previously, but if you never got it before, I want you to look at it because to abide means to remain perpetually within. If you abide in the light, you are remaining perpetually in Christ. And the one who loves his brother is he talking about his uh, genetic brother? No. Maybe he is. Maybe we're all of genetically in Christ, right? Through the blood of Christ. But I want you to look at that. The one who loves abides. He abides. He remains. He, he is perpetually remained. And I want to I wanna make an important point here, a very important point. He remains not because of what he does. He remains because who he is. The believer remains in Christ because of Christ's faithfulness to the believer. Not something we do. 
That's where all the religious thought breaks down. When we want to take the grace of God and we want to assign it to things that we do so that we can say, I go to church, I do this, I teach Sunday school. Wasn't that the sin of the people in Matthew 7? The Lord talks about those on Judgment Day that say, Lord, Lord. Notice what they say. Didn't I, didn't we preach in your name, prophesy? Did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not do all these great works? Now, listen, don't be too hard on those people because I think a lot of those people were really good people, but they weren't saved. And they relied on their religious works. You see, I did this. I did that. And there are many that are walking around today believing that they're saved and their only confidence is in this. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I help old ladies across the street. I give to the poor. I feed the hungry. You see this a lot at Thanksgiving time, right? Usually on the Wednesday to Tuesday, Wednesday before Thanksgiving, every news station goes out to the soup kitchens and they do a two, three-minute spot on, oh, you know, and then they interview the people working at the soup kitchen. It gives me such a good feeling inside to be able to do this. Look, I'm not knocking that. But I want, to, I want you to pay attention to how it's heard. It gives me a good feeling. We remain in Christ because Christ remains in us. We remain in Christ because the believer is secure. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so Christ is able to hold us. Christ is able to anchor us. When we do indeed stumble and fall, we are able to come through the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit and confess that sin and be made right. None of us stand in our own strength. The only reason we stand is because of the unmerited favor of God. God. And as I've told you time and time again, when you hear that word grace, take the definition beyond the unmerited favor of God. Yes, it is the unmerited favor of God, but the full definition of grace is the unmerited favor of God and his enablement or his power for living. We have that power if we are in Christ. I want to call your attention to, in verse 10, to the other key word in there. It says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. I want you to circle light. John uses the word light figuratively. He uses it metaphorically, representing the abiding, the remaining presence of Christ. And this is used throughout the epistle. It's used throughout the Bible. Within Scripture, light representing the presence of God to the people or the person of God's presence. God is described as light. Truth is portrayed as light. Take a look at some of the word, uh, some of the Scriptures, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. 
And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. We see it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says this in Luke eleven thirty six: If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. John twelve thirty six: While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke. And he departed and hid himself from them. One of my favorite, James 1.12, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. And as we saw in 1 John 1.5, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. Believers in Christ abide in that light. We abide in the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel. We abide in the light of Christ and His sinless perfection. We abide in the light of God's glorious salvation toward us. And it's all built upon the completed work of Christ. On the cross. This is the mark of a believer that the light is upon us, and this light contrasts with the world. What did John say early in his gospel about Jesus? The light came into the world, and, and, and the world hated it. Darkness hated the light. Are we to be surprised? at the tide that we see that has shifted in this nation? Are we to be surprised that wrong is called right and right is called wrong? Are we to be surprised at the animosity that is directed toward believers in Christ? And let me share something. It is, that animosity is even coming out of the so-called, and I'll put that in air quotes, the so-called evangelical church. Conservative, biblical Christians will be hated more and more. We sang it in that great hymn, In Christ Alone, where we did that bridge. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. That's what it is. We must stand upon the Word of God. We must stand upon this historic, biblical, Christian faith that has been handed down to us by the martyrs, and we must not waver. If everybody rejects it, we must hold and prove ourselves to be faithful to the gospel. Finally, look with me at verse 11. But the one who hates his brother, here he goes again, is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded 
his eyes. I want to call your attention to a few key words in that verse. Again, we're going to go with the word hate. And I want to make a very important point. Remember I told you the definition of that word hate is to detest or to love someone or something more, and specifically in the biblical context, more than God. Right? That's what it means to hate. Hate is not a byproduct of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's actually a deed of the flesh. And I want you to see this. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Galatians 5, beginning with verse 19. I want, you to, I want you to see this here. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is Paul writing to the church at Galatia who has fallen away from the truth and is now giving in to other heresies, particularly Judaizers that were seeking to intermingle into the church Mosaic law and grace. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now, in my Bible, it says enmity, but in the King James, it says hatred. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these of which I forewarn you. Now listen to these words, please. Of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the key there. Practice. Practice. Another word for perpetually. You're constantly doing it. This is constant. You're walking in it. Paul makes it very clear that those who practice those things, those who love anything greater than the love of God, those who practice those things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I say to myself, everyone really needs to take a good look at this that Paul describes as deeds of the flesh, because they answer a very important question that people ask. How do I know if I am saved? You could take them to Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. Listen, John has made clear that the defining mark of the believer is love, and specifically that is a love for God, a love for his church, a love for the believers. There is a love for God, a love for Christ, a love for the brethren, a love for the church of Jesus Christ, a love for the lost, a love to do Christ's will, a love to serve as Christ's love, a love for holiness, a love for the light of God, a love that which is pure. It's not the love that the world speaks of. But it is the love of God. A love of God is a love for God's truth. A love for God is a love of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And John sums this up perfectly. A few chapters down. Turn in your Bible to chapter 4 of 1 John. 
And he, he does a great summary. As a matter of fact, you're going to see all throughout this epistle of 1 John, it's love, it's love, it's love, it's love, it's love. Look at verse 15 of John chapter 4. I love this. This is the perfect summation. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. How fantastic is this. The one who confesses, that word means to agree with, to say the same thing. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son, there it is. There it is. That's the intersection for the love of God. It's Jesus Christ. It's coming to that place of forgiveness and repentance in Christ. It's coming to that place where you're born again. It's coming to that place where you fully surrender yourself completely and wholly to Christ. There's the intersection. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice what it says. God abides in him. God perpetually will remain in him. Paul said in Romans, Know ye not that the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you? You ever think about that? The same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in the hearts of the believers. If you are saved, you are indwelt with the Spirit of God. Notice he goes on to say, God is love. Love is not love. God is love. And notice, the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Praise God. He goes on to say, by this love is perfected with us. And because of that, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. How true is that song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand? All other ground is sinking sand. <clears throat> this is true love. We hear so much about love today. We're hearing a lot about love this month. But we hear so much about love. And yet the love of the world is a perverse love. And the only standard is self. John has given us a standard. And it's God. And it's the love of Christ. Not with the world. A perfected love. So in closing, as we come to the end of this section of this portion of the epistle of 1 John, we saw that John made three significant points. He shows love as an old commandment. 
going back to the very origins. He showed love as a new commandment, as was personified in Jesus Christ. And he showed love as the defining mark of the believer. How phenomenal that the church, that the gospel, is all about the love of God. The love of God given to the believer, the love of God both is an old and new commandment. The love of God is the defining mark of a believer. So the question becomes for all of us, are we abiding in this love of God? Are we abiding in this love for God? Does the love of God control us? Or it's as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that the love of God compels us? Listen, faith without the love of God is like a car with an engine, without an engine. It'll look good on the sidewalk. A lot of people walk up to it and go, man, that car looks good. I wish I had that car. But you know, at the end of the day, can't get you anywhere. We want to be people of God that love our God, that are passionate for our God, that are unashamed of our God. So church, we need to be loving and living as Christ did, as Christ calls us. Love involves grace. Love involves truth. That's why we preach the gospel here. Love involves sacrifice, love involves service, love involves inconvenience and obedience. Guess what? You want to be a believer in Christ? You want to be a follower of Christ? Here's the first thing you need to know. You're going to be inconvenienced. You are going to be called to sacrifice. And if you can answer yes to that question today, then let's rally ourselves and bring ourselves together and labor for the kingdom of God. Because I'll tell you what, Christ is coming. And he is coming quickly. I'm not talking in a few hundred years. I'm, I'm not a prophet, so I'm not going to speak as a prophet. But Christ is coming, people. And dear friend, if your answer is no, the love of Christ is not present in your life, will you today, will you today, this very minute, turn to Christ in repentance? And that simply means you're going you're to turn away from your sin and everything else that you're trusting and you are going to entrust yourself. You're going to fall completely and fully onto the grace of God that Christ accomplished on the cross for you. You're going to cry out and say, Lord, save me, a sinner. I don't have that certainty. I don't know that. Save me. And will you trust Christ for the finished work that he did on that cross? for your eternal salvation. Let me share something with you. The only thing that will matter on that great day of judgment is have you trusted Jesus Christ? 
His finished work on the cross. Have you turned to him in repentance and sin and said, Lord, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, how great you are. How glorious are you, Lord. And Lord, we cry to you today. Teach us, Lord. To love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. Let us be genuine, authentic, real followers of Christ. Let us lay aside every bit of religious jargon, of formality and tradition without the love of God. And Father, may your Spirit flood our hearts and our minds with your presence. And Father, if there be any here today, oh God, I pray, if there be any here today who will say that I don't know. I don't know this love of God. I don't know. I I, I have been trusting myself and my good deeds. Father, I don't know. Lord, their mind may be racing with questions. Why this way, that? But Father, we pray right at this moment that the Holy Spirit would draw them to Christ. And Lord, that they would surrender. Stop fighting. Surrender and say, I want to follow Jesus. I give my all to Christ. I turn from my sins and repentance. And I entrust myself to Christ. Lord, we ask you for this this day. Lord, may they not leave here today without approaching one of us and saying, I I'm trusting Christ today. Lord, we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.